Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Okay, uh, elephantites out there. I'm uh, here with Kyle Marsh. Welcome, Kyle. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's awesome to have you here. I'm looking forward to our chat. So um, uh, before we get into it, would you mind introducing yourself out to the, the folks and just you know, however you want to introduce yourself and describe what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was originally a dancer, like many, a Pilates person, um, and I studied dance in college, danced professionally. Um, this eventually led me to pursue actually a master's degree in dance education um, and then to teach very briefly at the collegiate level, just like Pilates and like a dance technique class, um, and then eventually to teach uh, in K through 12 education in a public school for two years as a dance teacher, which were the most challenging and emotionally brutal two years of my entire life. Um, because public school teachers in the United States are severely undervalued and very underpaid. Hence, a transition. Um, I left teaching dance to pursue Pilates full-time, um, kind of encouraged by a dance friend of mine who recruited me to teach in a Pilates studio um, at a corporate international luxury gym. And from there, I went on to just teach like a regular instructor, group fitness, all that good stuff, and then become very involved in their teacher training program um, as a lead teacher trainer and then administrator, and then eventually somebody who is also kind of working on curriculum and sort of uh, assessments for the program, um, and then the pandemic hit. And now um, I am the co-founder of True to Form, which is an online Pilates-based fitness studio that offers athletic strength-forming workouts for everybody um, that, that are designed to just help people feel free, fearless, and like anything is possible in the body that is already theirs. So no prerequisites for showing up. Um, and I also have the privilege of being married to somebody who is a science teacher of 11 years. So needless to say, I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about um, the world of education and educational theory in my life. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Uh, not, not, uh, not in your life specifically, but <laughs> um, <laughs> pedagogy. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, um, you know, we do. I do see that word thrown around from time to time in the Pilates world, pedagogy. But um, let's just start out by defining what the heck we mean by that. Yeah, sounds great. I, I was talking to a friend recently, and they were like, "Ooh, pedagogy—the other big P word." Um, basically, 
does the art and science or profession of teaching or maybe like more specifically an, the approach to teaching um, and the theory of the theory and practice of learning. So like what influences how learners learn. Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm saying pedagogy. Did you have anything you would want to add to that? No, I, I agree. It's just basically the the science of structuring information and delivering uh, and basically teachings to enhance people's ability to learn something. Basically, teaching, teaching, Agreed. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, but and so we, we want to, you know, have a chat about this because uh, you and I've chatted offline about this a fair bit. Um, we want to chat about. We want to discuss both teaching as Pilates teachers, you know, the word teacher often is used or instructor, which um, I think is has a pretty similar derivation, but both teaching skill as Pilates teachers, but actually where that comes from in Pilates teacher training programs and how the, the two interrelate. So that's, that's the basic uh, setup for the conversation. So, you know, let's talk, uh, you know, tell, can you set up for me why you think this is an important conversation? Yes. Um, all right. So Pilates, police, beware. Fasten your seatbelts. Um, but I really, I think that the reason it's important to talk about um, Pilates pedagogy, and then right now I'm specifically referring just to the running of teacher training programs, so like how we disseminate information within teacher training programs. I think it's really important to unpack this because how people go through their teacher training and what they learn in their teacher training um, has a big part to play, in my opinion, in what type of Pilates humans they then go out into the world to become. And that affects all of us because um, that has an interplay with how people show up in our industry and things that they do or don't choose to believe. And maybe if you want to make that more specific, um, you know, I see, I'm sure you see this too, Raph, on Instagram and all the internet places, like so much, so many Pilates people yelling at each other about what is correct and what isn't correct. And then some, a lot of what I would consider to be like cyberbullying that comes as a result of that. Um, and even though it feels like a really big concept to sort of trace that all back to what happens in a teacher training program, I do feel like that's a thread that we could create. Um, yeah, so that's where the thought about this came from for me. <laughs> okay, great. Well, uh, let's let's create that thread. Start spinning. What do you what do you see as the connection? Um, so I think you know, taking this back a step, you know, my my foundation in all of this comes from a place of be, having been a dance educator and having gone through, um, you know, a master's training program to learn how to teach and think about teaching, which involved a lot of um, examining styles of teaching, um, which, for example, one of the things we talk a lot about in dance education is how traditionally there has been a lot of authoritarian style teaching. So this way of teaching that just assumes that the student is there to absorb information, that they don't come into the room with any like experiences of their own. And if they do, it doesn't matter. And that we're just there to like enlighten them 
and then they go off into the world to be sort of mini versions of us. And I think that we can draw some parallels there to Pilates teacher training um, because that is kind of traditionally the style of education that uh, most Pilates teacher trainings, as far as I'm aware, like grew out of. And there's still a lot of that that exists in our industry. So this like you're an empty vessel, I'm going to teach you all of the things that you need to know about Pilates because I am the Pilates God and we have these blinders on. And then, you know, after you have that information, you'll go into the world and sort of be my minions. And instead of this idea that we can invite students into the room with us and make it the learning experience more collaborative and we can ask people to think more critically um, about what they're learning. Wow. Okay. Fuck, that is so awesome. What you just said there, just, I had a brain explosion emoji. This idea of the authoritarian uh, sort of teaching mentality where we basically say the student, uh, you know, the, 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 the student has empty vessel and the process of teaching is, is essentially the teacher downloading what's in their brain into the student's brain until the student is, you know, in a perfect world, an identical copy of you know, what's inside the teacher's brain is now inside the, t- the student's brain. So in other words, when you learn, you know, in the style of Ramana, your goal is to teach just like Ramana. Um, now, right. if you're out there and you're a Ramana teacher and I've got that wrong, please enlighten me. Um, I don't mean to offend, but, uh, you know, I, I, and, and I see, you know, I, I, and, and, you know, that could equally apply to if you're a stock Pilates teacher, your goal is to teach just like Moira. Um, or if, you know, if you're a Bassey teacher, your goal is to teach like Rael, you know. Um, and again, tell you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, anybody out there in Pilates land. Um, but, I, you know, the, the, and I think ultimately, you know, if you're a super duper like contrology person, your goal is to teach just like Joseph. So, but like in any like true uh, you know, scientific discipline, we we separate we we're able to separate the core principles and, and you know axioms of you know the discipline you know things that are universal uh, from some you know individual quirks of the person you know delivering or applying those principles. So you know Ramana did you know, so many things right, but what are, you know which of the things that she did right were like principle, and which were just like Ramana isms. You know, and and so as students, do we, you know, is it, it why is it important for us to take on her Romanaisms? You know, can't we just get the the gist of, you know, what's what's true and important about about what she was teaching? Right, and then like if to add on to that, if you are able, to, if you're given the freedom to consider just getting the gist of what was important about what Romana were using her as an example or Joe was trying to teach, then where do you get to insert yourself as a teacher into the process after that? And I think that's one of the troubling parts of an authoritarian style <laughs> teaching method is that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't invite you as the person who is, you know, becoming the, the teacher um, into the experience of finding your identity within that. And I'll, speak for myself and say that, you know, not only because I came from a dance background, but also um, in my experience with some of the teacher training programs that I went through, there was a very authoritarian sense of how the information was being delivered. And it didn't give me permission to explore 
who I could be a teacher within that construct. And it took me a lot longer to find that and maybe arguably even become a better teacher because I felt like I had to do things exactly the way that I learned them. And I think one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk uh, to you specifically is because you and Chloe have done such a great job of setting up this sort of um, sense of there are rules, we don't have to follow them all to a T. And once you understand the framework of what you are trying to work in, be it, you know, Pilates, um, there's actually a lot of freedom and like a lot of options. There's not a ton of things that are like really, really wrong. And I think a lot of us are led to feel that way because of the way teacher trainings tend to be led. Right. And in that authoritarian model as well, because you're as a student, you're, and this was my experience, you know, be doing my instructor certification with Stop Pilates originally, that you're not, you know, you're, you're not only not encouraged to think critically about what you're being taught, you're, you're actively discouraged from thinking critically. You know, you basically, you're, you're, you're uh, required to uncritically accept everything that you are taught. Um, and so you, you, don't, you, you don't have the ability to discern, you know, from within that paradigm, you don't have the ability to discern, you know, what's true, what's not true, what's actually important, what's irrelevant, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's a principle, what's a quirk of the person who happened to be your trainer. Um, and so, you, you know, once you graduate and out there in, in the world teaching, it's really hard to sort of to, to, to disentangle all of those Gains and and figure out okay it's like like what if if what what bits of this can I apply my individual you know personality or thinking or whatever to and what bits are kind of you know principle and need to remain you know as as, as I learn them sort of thing so yeah we're not actually gifted the tools to critically evaluate information is as part of teaching I think that's you know that's probably my biggest concern. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and I would say as somebody who made the transition from uh, having to think really exhaustively uh, in a dance education setting where you're like in a public school and you're writing lesson plans and you have to have lesson objectives every day. And then when you give a test, you have to have like measurable assessments and it's all like very um, standardized and you have a lot of other people giving you feedback about how, you know, accurate what you think you are doing is or isn't because there's also a different culture around um, that instead of academic learning to then go into a setting like Pilates where I, I find that most teacher training programs and what we teach and how we teach it tends to be quite arbitrary. Um, and what I mean by that is that it is a lot of just like these are the exercises and you need to learn them and this is the way I'm teaching them to you as opposed to Pilates teachers who are running teacher training programs engaging in understanding how learning actually works and then building teacher training programs that um, enable their learners to thrive. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, all right, so let's talk then, well, let's talk now about how teacher training programs are structured. And, you know, I think probably both you and I have, you know, good knowledge of certain programs and poor to non-existent knowledge of other programs. So, you know, let's, let's, let's be upfront about that. I've been through the Stop Pilates system. I was an instructor trainer in the Stop Pilates system. 
you've uh, you were educated through Equinox or Equinox, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but um, uh, and you were a, an educator uh, with Equinox. So you know we've we've got fairly intimate knowledge of those systems respectively, and you know I've seen, I'm sure you've seen online, you know descriptions or advertisements for other educators like you know Polestar and Bassi and whatever. So I know that they teach like for example in modules and level one, level two, level three, some companies, you know, so like we've got sort of an outsider's understanding of other training. Is it, is that a fair fair assessment? Yeah, and actually just a slight correction. So my first training program that I went through um, to be educated was Polestar. Um, uh -huh. So I'm familiar with that one as well. And then I came to work for Equinox and went through their teacher training program. But I shout out to Carrie Macy Stamper. I love her. She was, she is the director of teacher training at Equinox. Um, and I really enjoyed working with her. So I'm not trying to be critical of her, but that's just talking specifically or overall about Pilates education. And my experience in teacher training has been teaching for Equinox. Okay, so let's talk, you know, given that uh, uh, disclaimer, uh, let's talk about how teacher training programs are structured. Talk me yeah, lead off on this. Yeah, okay, great. So I think the two, I'll speak just to my experiences, uh, both with Polestar and then with Equinox. So both, you know, Polestar, I guess what you would define as like a contemporary style teacher training, um, whereas Equinox identifies as being authentic or classical. And um, the, oh, wow, it's so hard to like measure the difference between the two. But one of the things, um, and now I'm going to sort of mix in some of my dance educator thoughts here as well, um, that's different uh, about just Pilates teacher training in general versus like education uh, is that there's not always very clear teaching objectives. And what I mean by that is whether you're teaching in a module or you're teaching the beginner system, um, the clarity of what it is you want the students to learn besides just exercises, like what skills are you trying to layer in um, to each lesson that you want them to eventually master? And how are you scaffolding the building of those skills into each lesson? And then when are you making assessments of whether or not they've achieved those skills and are those assessments of those skills actually measuring the thing that you think they're measuring? Oh, hold, hold on a minute. Can I just uh, take a moment to digest that and, and applaud? Um, because, in, you know, in my experience in Stop Pilates, like none of those things were a thing at all. Like there was no scaffolding. There were no learning objectives for a session or a module or a program there were there were you know tasks to be done you know demonstrate the hundred have the students do the hundred correct the students technique on the hundred demonstrate the following five modifications of the hundred you know etc so there were tasks you know to tick off your list as an instructor trainer for stop pilates but there was no like okay how do you know if the students can teach the hundred. You know what will you see the students do that will tell you that they they get it. Um, uh, and and then the, there was no assessment during the program. I think most uh, teacher training programs, I believe, you know, follow this model where you do an exam at, at the end. But the exam is not part of the program. It's actually in stop Pilates, It was uh, you book the exam separately. So basically, you do your whole you know, certification training and then you book the exam as a separate 
thing. And people have up to six months after their training completes to do the exam. And most people, of course, leave it to exactly, you know, six months to the day. Um, and, uh, you know, totally stressed about the whole thing for six months. But on the day of the exam, then you're assessed on all of these um you're assessed on you know, you know doing exercises and teaching exercises and doing a posture analysis and stuff, but it, it's 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 so it's such an artificial situation that I I believe there's a massive disconnect between what's assessed in the exam and actually the skills required to be a successful Pilates instructor. So yeah, I, I think- I could not agree more. Um, I mean, it goes without saying, like, you know, when you, there are, like, courses written on, like, how to develop assessments. Assessment is actually a very complex, complex thing. It's very difficult to know, like, to actually make assessments that measure the things we think that we are measuring. Um, And sort of speaking to your uh, point there just about your SCOT experience that was also more or less my experience in both teacher trainings like a lot of check boxes um, and then just like was the spring set up correct was the headrest up was the headrest down you know are you are they on the correct springs and then in, in both my experience um, with Polestar and also as a teacher trainer with Equinox there's a lot of just running through exercises so one of the one of the things that I think is different potentially about some of the classical teacher training programs that I'm familiar with is that you do actually often have, you have to test out of your beginner system and then you have to test out of your intermediate and then your advanced. So there are three exams technically, but often what's being measured in those instances is your memorization of the exercises. So just the fact that you're teaching in the correct order with all of the correct machine setups and like, you know, there can be things in there. I've seen things in there. I've had the experience where it's like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to like layer your cues and you're supposed to do all this stuff. But the truth of the matter is you can't, that's a lot of things to be assessing in one <laughs> one scenario. Um, so like what kind of exam are you writing for that? Or there's often multiple choice exams that have been I've taken or given out. Um, and that's also still just like rot information. One of the examples I, I like to use often and what kind of got me thinking about this, and it was something that I was involved in conversations around um, before I left Equinox, is that in the advanced exam for a classical system, usually it's like you're teaching all of the advanced exercises that needs to be in the right order. There's a time limit on it. Um, and then you're also supposed to check off all these other things like cues, tactile, blah, blah, blah. Um, but my point of view on that is that in that instance, you are not actually measuring any of those like tactile cues, verbal cues, like ability to, you know, adjust for any type of pathology. What you're actually measuring is the student's ability to complete all of the exercises within a time frame. That's actually what is being measured in that scenario. Um, and so if we know that, then I'm not just trying to be a downer. Like, what's the solution? Great question. Um, And so I personally would love to see more of this in Pilates teacher training programs overall is like I would highly advocate for the use of a rubric. Um, And also because and the reason I say that um, is because 
rubrics, if designed correctly, are a great way of actually being very clear about what it is that you are trying to measure. And as an educator, if you have to sit down and create a rubric, you're going to get, you're going to see very quickly how inaccurate the assessment that you're giving is. And also, one of the big purposes, in my mind, of any type of assessment or test out, however you want to call it, especially in education, is to give the student feedback about, it's not just so you pass the course, it's also like to give the student feedback about where they are in their learning process. And that is something that overall I really don't see or haven't experienced any teacher training programs doing very well. Um, and that is something that I think we can borrow from the world of academic education. Like, it's not just taking a multiple choice question test, and it's not just completing your test out, like that doesn't give you very much information about where you are in your right. teaching. Whereas if you designed like, I don't know, uh, a rubric or something that was able to give the student feedback about like, oh, like I am really not, you know, fully utilizing um, my tactile cues in a way that I would like to. And like, and then, you know, the rubric can show the measures for, for things like literal steps that they could take to improve that, um, as opposed to just either being bad at it or good at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on having a rubric. And in fact, uh, uh, shout out to Stop Pilates, they have a rubric. They had, they had a rubric when I was training for them. And it served the purpose of achieving a, a much more uniform set of, uh, you know, grading criteria. So you're much more likely to get a similar mark you know, regardless of which instructor trainer, you know, you did your exam with because they're all working from the same rubric. So I think that, you know, that's definitely a positive. But the rubric's only as good as the, the, the well, rubric... The person it, who wrote it. it. <laughs> it, it, it it's, it's, only as, it's only as good as basically it, as its relevance to actually what, you, what, what the students need to learn, right? So the stop plate is rubric was very clear and it said, okay, for example, one of the things you had to do as part of your exam was uh, teach the five principles of stop Pilates to the client, okay? And by teaching the five principles of stop Pilates, what that literally meant was reciting verbatim the, 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 the spiel that was in the manual about each principle, right? So basically, the, you know, the, the rubric was, you know, student used, you know, mention this, mention this, mention this, mention this, you know, it's basically... So if you literally verbatim recited what was in the manual, you get 100% for it. And that required, so you're not actually testing the student's understanding and you're not testing their ability to teach that. All you're testing is their ability to memorize it and regurgitate it. And that comes, I think, comes to, you know, the crux of, I think, what you mentioned before about basically, you know, rote memorization is is you know, you, you're, you're testing the student's ability to, you know, uh, reproduce exactly what they've been taught. You know, in other words, memorise and you know, recite. And in the academic literature, we there's a distinction that between that's called surface learning, which is, you know, memorisation, lists, rules, etc. And then there's what's called deep learning, which is learning of principles and the relationships between concepts and reasoning skills and what's called metacognition, which is basically thinking about your own thinking and observing your thinking process and going, huh, when I try to problem solve this way, it doesn't work. But when I do it that way, it does work. Maybe I need to update my problem solving you know, process. So, 
So all of these are the deep learning skills, like you know, learning principles, you know, getting, joining the dots between concepts and going, ah, so if that and that, therefore this other thing might, you know, what would happen if we recontextualize that and go, you know, you know, if what, 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 how would that work if we were teaching this to a different client or whatever, uh, you know, and, and being able to problem solve those are the, and, it, and so, you know, in my experience as a Pilates student and a, as a Pilates educator for Stop Pilates, there was none of that at all. None of that deep learning wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It was all about memorizing the correct positions, memorizing the correct modifications, memorizing the correct spring settings, memorizing the correct muscles, memorizing the, you know, which order to teach the exercises in, et cetera. And, and, and there were correct cues for each exercise as well. So it was literally, you know, just memorization and there was no understanding at all. Yeah, I, I can relate to that a lot. Um, and actually just to go back to the, the comment you made about the thought rubric, um, I agree, I've seen terrible rubrics, and I'll, I'll tie this back to what I said earlier in the conversation, which is that assessment and building assessments that are accurate is very difficult. Right. Um, and I, I, to any, like, you know, people who have a teacher training program out there or Pilates, are our Pilates teacher trainers and are listening to this conversation and they're like, well, what the F am I supposed to do then? I mean, I feel really strongly that there are so many people who are experts in the art of assessment and just education in general who are not in the Pilates world who offer such great trainings and continuing education and that if you do want to have a teacher training program um, and even if you're even more so if you're an international teacher training program like SOT, you should go do that continuing ed and like learn how to build actual assessments that work um, and are actually doing something that's meaningful instead of just rot learning. And that's like my tough love on that subject because I do think that it's something that we're lacking. And I, I don't want to imply that like, I don't think the Pilates world needs to rewrite the concept of how we make assessments and what they are. Like somebody's already done that research for us. There's already a lot of good advice on how to do that. It's just the training isn't there because we've never had, going back to the um, thinking about, you know, authoritarian style teaching, like, you know, we've never had to think critically about that as a community or industry, because that's just not how we were teaching things up until now. And now that we are, I think it behooves everybody to go back and do that continuing ed if you haven't already, or like if everything that we're saying in this conversation feels like Greek to somebody who has a Pilates teacher training program or works for one, I, I feel like you should probably go read up on that or like, you know, take a course. Yeah, there is a, a, a massive, massive body of academic literature on what works in education and what doesn't, because it's like, it's like, that's like academic navel gazing, because actually academia, you know, it's, it's their job to educate people. You know, when I say academia, I mean like university uh, researchers, university lecturers, you know, they're the people, the lecturers are the people who are doing research into how to lecture and how to teach. And so it, there's just an immense amount of research. There's like literally more than a thousand meta-analyses um, on you know what 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 are the what are the what are the value, what are the important influences on that uh, you know influence student learning outcomes. Um, so a lot is known about this topic, just not it's not well understood in the Pilates world, among, you know, and in many other worlds as well. Another thing academics are really good at is uh, not publicising their knowledge very widely 
So those thousand meta-analyses are sitting buried under piles of <laughs> dust somewhere <laughs> in the back shelf of a library. Um, so, all right, so, uh, you know, we've talked about the authoritarian model of teaching, which is essentially, you know, conceptualises learning as, you know, the student is an empty vessel and the, the student's job is to download information from the teacher you know, into their own brain or the teacher's job is to download information into the student. The student is a passive receptacle. And that basically, you know, results in the student, you know, being taught in, you know, surface approaches, which basically, you know, memorization, lists, rules. Um, and so that results in the student, you know, essentially sort of by definition, uncritically accepting, you know, everything they learn as, you know, truth with a capital T. And, you know, I think that's where we get to draw the bright line from there to, you know, some of the tribalism in Pilates culture, which is like, okay, if I learned in stop Pilates and I was taught that, you know, to do the hundred a certain way, right? Well, I know that that is the way, capital T, capital W, to do the hundred, right? But you were, you were taught in Polestar and you learned it a slightly different way. And, but you learned it, capital T, capital W, the way, you know, and but your way happens to be a bit different to my way. So according to me, you're by definition you're wrong, and according to you, by definition I'm wrong. So, <laughs> um, you know, is that how you see that as well? I mean, I witnessed that. I don't believe that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, I do. I do see that playing out that way. Um, but my kind of point of view on all of this is that. Learning is dynamic, much like the body is dynamic, and much like science is dynamic. Like there, there's no two bodies, as we all know, or I feel like as you know, just from listening to the podcast, there's no two bodies that are identical. So like the idea that there's this capital true way to like teach the hundred is hilarious if you step back and actually look at it, um, because just by, I don't know, like logic like that can't be true if no two bodies are exactly the same um and so i think there's a lot of talking about pilates as a system um and the body as a system and it's not that i'm trying to say that either of those things can't be true in under a certain view um but when we create like as a result of teacher training programs that are perpetuating this cultural value set of this is the way and if you leave once you leave here this will continue to be the way and then the way it plays out in our culture is people go on instagram and yell at each other and do horrible things like you know create what the fuck wednesdays where they make fun of people for how they teach or exercises that they do that they think are not actual exercises my question around that is like how does that actually benefit our industry and who is that for is that for you and your ego to feel better about what you know or is that really for the benefit of your clients because i from my experience the majority of the people who come into this industry are doing it because they want to help people like most of us um I think come to the work, however you want to define it, the work of Pilates, uh, with a sense of, you know, like sort of more kumbaya, like I want to help people feel good, I want to help people feel strong, I want them to be empowered, like all that stuff. Not like I need everyone to tell me that I teach the hundred the correct way. Uh -huh. And all right, so with you know, what what's what's the alternative to authoritarian teaching? Great question. Um, I, in my view, I think it involves 
inviting students to be collaborators with you, the teacher. And what do I mean by that? Like, it is silly to assume that anyone who's coming to any type of training, but in this instance, Pilates teacher training, is an empty vessel. Like, everyone comes with cultural value sets, personal belief systems, personal experiences, and all of those things can go into building them up as a teacher. And I know that this is a more potentially complicated feeling way of teaching for maybe some of our friends who have been more in this authoritarian style of teacher training. Um, but I would argue that it's a much more meaningful way to step into your approach for teacher training uh, or leading teacher trainings than the authoritarian view because your students aren't empty. Most of them are adults. Most of them have had like, you know, some people, a lot of people will do I had this experience teaching at Equinox, like a lot of people were coming and it was like a complete life and career transition for them to come into teacher training um, and decide to become a Pilates instructor after, you know, 30 or 20 years of doing something else. And the reason they wanted to become instructors was usually because they had had a very meaningful personal experience with Pilates. And so how do you use that as a jumping off point for then helping this person discover um, what type of instructor they want to become. <laughs> like, give them the information and the tools that they need. I'm not trying to make this wishy-washy. Like, yes, they need to know the names of the exercises and they need to know contraindications and all of these things um, or, and the setup of the equipment, but there can it can be deeper than that. Um, yeah, I hope, did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, all right. So can I, can I give you my, my thoughts on that and you tell me if you agree or, you know, disagree and then we can, we can discuss it. Um, so, well, the first thing is, so this is basically, you know, let's flesh out, let's write a, let's write a manifesto, you know, or a, a guide on how to, um, teach in a sort of a spirit of mutual, uh, inquiry. Um, uh, and so, well, the first thing I would say is, um, meet the students where they're at, you know, like you said, you know, people aren't empty vessels. They come with you know, even someone who's never studied Pilates will have some preconceived notions about what Pilates is and what good Pilates teaching is and the proper way to do exercises. They might be wrong. They might be wildly wrong, but but they're going to have some kind of, you know, preconceptions about these things. Um, and so it's important to meet people where they're at. Um, and the only way you can meet them where they're at is by first knowing where they're at. So you have to sort of pull that out of them and by saying like okay so what do you you know in your view what's what you know you want to be a good Pilates teacher what does that mean to you you know how will you know when you're a good Pilates teacher what does a good Pilates teacher look like or do or you know talk or think like um and then the, the second thing so first meet people where they're at the second thing is prioritize deep learning before surface learning so what I mean by that is again deep learning is is principles uh, relationships between concepts, reasoning skills, and metacognition, so thinking about your own thinking. Uh, and that, you know, after that, surface learning. So it is important to remember the, the choreography of the 100 or the, you know, pr the safest way to adjust the footbar on the reformer or whatever. It's like, no, you know, you, memorization is not evil. It's just, it's, it, it's, not, it's not a complete, uh, you know, learning experience. So the, the benefit of doing deep or focusing on deep learning first is when you understand why something's important, it's way easier to memorize it. Right? So if if 
if if I just said to you, like I don't know, here are here are these, you know, well, let's 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 give an example, right? So if if we're talking about um, how to, if we're learning about how to rehabilitate a torn medial collateral ligament, okay. Well, a surface approach would be to say, okay, uh, here's how you rehabilitate a torn medial collateral ligament. Um, in phase two, which is six to 12 weeks post-injury, uh, you do light weight bearing within pain tolerance. Um, you ensure correct execution of all exercises and walking. You strengthen the quads, hamstrings, calves, glutes, and hip flexors. Um, you do forward-backward movement only, so no twisting, no side-to-side movement. And you only work in a zero to 60 degree range of motion, so sort of like a half knee bend is the maximum uh, and if pain stays elevated for more than a day after a session you decrease the intensity of the next session now that you know so so a surface way of learning would be basically your job as a student is to is to memorize that and regurgitate it right so then if a client walks in at some point and they've got a injured medial collateral ligament you just go blah 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 you press the brain, button inside your brain that says you know rehab medial collateral ligament and that spiel comes out and then you just you know read it off the page and that's what you do but whereas a deep approach would be, okay, picture a knee, right? You can look at your own knee, you know, picture someone else's knee in your mind's eye. So the medial collateral ligament is on the inside of your knee, right? So, you know, if you stand with your legs straight and your knees together, you know, your two medial collateral ligaments are touching in your knees, right? So it goes from your femur bone to your, to your tibia bone, you know, from your thigh bone to your shin bone. And it joins those two bones together on the inside of your leg. And so if you put your hand on the inside of your knee, you know, going from your femur to your tibia, you know, your fingers are now basically over the top of your medial collateral ligament. Now, thinking about that medial collateral ligament, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, okay, joining the femur to the tibia on the inside of the knee, okay, well, what if, you know, what movement of the knee of those two bones, okay, would maximally stress that ligament? You know, like if, if we were going to injure that ligament, how would we have to move those bones in what direction will we move them in order to stress that ligament? Now, the ligament is on the inside of the knee. It goes from the femur to the tibia, okay? If you can make a picture of that in your mind's eye, okay? Bend those bones one way and the other way. Which way stretches the ligament? Which way puts the most tension on that ligament, okay? And if you're picturing it accurately, what you'll be able to see in your mind's eye right now is that as you bend the tibia outwards, so in other words, if you were, you know, if you were standing with your feet apart and you knocked your knees inwards, you know, you you bend the the base of the tibia outwards, the knee joint goes inwards. That would massively stretch the medial collateral ligament. And so, knowing that, well, if somebody, if I injured my medial collateral ligament, right? Well, you know now what position I was in when I injured it, because if if I do any other position, it doesn't stretch the ligament, so it's not going to injure it. So knowing that that medial movement of the knee, it's called knee valgus, basically your knee's knocking in, okay, that is the position of maximum stress on that ligament just by you know, picturing it in your mind, okay, you're understanding the concept of tension on that ligament and what positions are dangerous. So now, okay, I come in, I injured my medial collateral ligament last week, which movement should I avoid, right? Well, that hopefully now is pretty obvious to you because you think, well, it's when you need go in, that's why it's going to stress that ligament. So don't do that on day one of rehab, right? Because your ligament's still healing, right? So so if I'm going to avoid basically side-to-side movement, right, if I do side lunges or side splits or anything, that's going to stress that ligament, okay? So we're not going to do any of that. 
So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to do front to back movement, right? So you can basically, you, you know, the, the, you can figure it out, right, based on the principle and understanding it. But of course, rehab means restoring strength and range of motion and control to a joint, right? So we know we're done with rehab when my knee functions normally again, right? So when now a normal functioning knee can tolerate sideways movement, right? So I have to get back to being able to tolerate sideways, sideways movement by the end of rehab because that's, that's actually the purpose of rehab is getting me back to full function. So which movement do I have to gradually build a tolerance to over rehab? You know, well, obviously it's the movement I can't do at the start of rehab is that sideways knee movement, right? So, at the, so the process of rehab for an injured medial collateral ligament of the knee is at first avoiding load on that ligament by avoiding sideways movement, okay? And then gradually over a period of rehab, gradually introducing sideways movement uh, up until the end of rehab where I'm doing like sideways hops off a BOSU and stuff like that and my ligament's totally fine with it because I've earned that load tolerance over time. So now if we go back and say, all right, so that was a deep approach to learning you know, medial collateral ligament rehab, rehab. If we go back and say, okay, now, okay, memorize this. Um, lightweight bearing within pain tolerance, forward backward movement only. Okay, like you're thinking like, yeah, of course, I don't even have to memorize it because that's obvious. It makes sense. I don't have to, mem- there's no memorization required, right? It's just kind of logic. So once you understand, once you, if you start with a deep approach to learning, the, 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 the surface stuff, the memorization is way, way easier. Whereas if you start with just the memorization, it makes no sense to you. It's just like memorizing a random string of numbers or something. And you can, you know, if you really practice, you can regurgitate it, but it doesn't, make, it doesn't mean anything to you. So then if someone goes, okay, well, what about a lateral collateral ligament, you know, the one on the outside of the knee? Well, if you've just a surface approach, you're like, well, I don't freaking know. <laughs> you know, I only learned the medial collateral ligament. But if you've got a deeper approach, right? And I tell you, well, there's a lateral collateral ligament and it's the exact same position, but it's on the outside of the knee, right? So it's exactly the same as the medial knee, the ligament, but it's on the outside of the knee. Well, you can make a picture in your mind now. You can think, oh, what movement is going to stress that ligament? And it's just going to be the opposite movement that stresses the medial ligament, right? And from that, you can figure out everything you need to know about rehabbing that joint, right? Which direction not to move in initially, which direction you have to gradually introduce, all of that stuff, right? So that's why the deep approach is so, so valuable. And I think it's a massive gaping hole in most Pilates education is that deep approach is you're not taught to actually understand, you know, as in like make a picture in your mind of what's happening inside the body and why we're doing, you know, what, why it's important to not do sideways movement in a, you know, in that situation. So number one, meet the students where they're at. Number two, deep learning before surface learning um and i think in just in terms of like um you know structure of a of a program the last thing that i would put in there is you know what you mentioned multiple times there kyle is just transparent learning outcomes you know so not just the the teacher but the students like super clear on what you will learn and and also clear on you know when you will learn it and as you're learning it you're clear that that's what you're learning right now and then as soon as you've learned it it's pointed out to you that that's what you just learned (laughs) so just like the learning is being really really clear and reinforced multiple times what are your thoughts on all that 
I couldn't agree more. I was scribbling notes as you were speaking. So actually, I want to just go back a little bit. Um, your example of the knee and learning which direction you would or wouldn't want to move the knee and the example of deep learning. That So if you're choosing, going back to the assessment piece of teacher training programs, um, if you are operating from a deep learning place, then your assessments automatically can become more dynamic in that like you wouldn't just have on your exam a yes or no like bubble question about like is this the correct way to move the knee or not or what the, is this, you know, no, what am I trying to say? No multiple choice questions. You would probably have a much more complex like response question where a student would have to write out for you like the explanation that you just gave of how you would choose to rehab that injury. Um, and that when you start to pursue deeper learning versus surface learning, that also will be demonstrated. It comes up in how you assess the learning as well, obviously, or I guess obviously to me, but because that you're doing more. Um, and yeah, I think transparency is is really key as we've talked about. But then also I love the point that you made about meeting the students where they're at, which triggered a thought pattern for me about um, having students sort of write or develop some kind of personal teaching philosophy that is theirs. And this is a practice that I took from, you know, um, my my degree in education is like when you're becoming an educator for like, you know, academia, you you spend a lot of time writing out this like personal teaching philosophy where you're like naming, you know, all of these modes of teaching that you want to embody and how you want to teach and what your values are for your classroom and your students. And, you know, I think that if um, you could, you could do that, you could incorporate that into your, into teacher training programs as well. And in your talking about meeting students where they're at, I think that um, asking the student to first invest in the process of teacher training, which it's not to say that they're not invested, they chose to be there. But if you give them the opportunity to bring their identity into teacher training immediately before you ask them to start memorizing things, it will become more meaningful to them because it will reiterate every time they approach information, like why it is they're still pursuing this thing that's important to them. Yeah, 100%. In fact, we do that um, because it's it's in a meta-analysis and I like to do things that are supported by meta-analyses. Um, but we do that in at uh, the start of our diploma course. Um, I just taught the start of a course only a couple of weeks back, so that's why it's fresh in my mind, that basically we do a uh, sort of a, a guided goal setting for students where they uh, spend a couple of minutes writing about their ideal kind of career or study future, like qualities they admire in others professionally, things they they think they could do better in relation to work or study, things they'd like to learn about professionally, habits they'd like to improve in relation to work or study. And so this is just freestyle. They don't share it with anyone. It's just private for themselves. Then they generate a wish list of goals um, for themselves, like three to five goals that they want to generate, um, some long-term goals. Um, and then they choose a single most important goal. And then they spend a couple of minutes, again, just totally private. No one gets to see it writing about why that goal is important to them and obviously this is a professional or study related goal why that's important to them and how how it will impact them and others when they achieve that goal and then uh, we go through basically smart goals. so we set you know sub goals okay if you want to achieve this goal this big goal in one to three years you know what are the things you need to do on a daily weekly basis you know what time are you going to do those things you know so it's like okay i'm going to spend half an hour before dinner on a tuesday and thursday at 5 p.m you know reading 
guidelines or whatever, practicing Pilates or whatever it is. Um, and then we're just building a contingency plan. Okay, so just say, you know, something goes wrong, kids get sick, mother-in-law comes to stay, whatever it is, you know, what's plan B? Um, and then they write out a commitment to themselves. You know, so it's basically, I, you know, insert name here, you know, do solemnly hereby swear that I will, you know, insert goal, you know, and then sign. <laughs> then we, make, we make them stick it up on their, well, we can't make them, we encourage them to stick it up on their fridge. And we also encourage them to share it on Slack, our internal communication platform. Um, and, you know, probably like, 20% of them share it publicly and the rest hopefully stick it up on the back of their toilet door or something like that where they can see it every day. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's awesome. And then do you also have them go back to it at some point? Because that's like another way to encourage, again, another level of metacognition, like, you know, have them write these teaching philosophies or essential values or their goals or whatever it is. And then, you know, throughout the program, have them check in with them and see if sometimes they'll change you know, because you've learned more. And so you realize that the first goal you said is actually hilarious and you want to alter, you know, alter it a little bit, or maybe you get the like reward of still being on track with it and like have that sort of accountability throughout your program. Yeah, we do it. We do a mid module checking. Our modules are 14 weeks long. Uh, and also we kind of use it in quotes against them. Um, like if somebody is struggling with motivation, like if they haven't you know, showed up one week or whatever, our student success team will reach out to them and go, oh, you know, so remind me what you wrote in your commitment statement, why that was important to you and all of that. And it basically just helps them <laughs> get in touch with, you know, why it is important, why, you know, why this is important to follow through and to, to you know, to make the effort. An accountability piece, I like that. Yeah, yeah but it's accountability to yourself, right? You, you set the standard for yourself and then all we do is remind you that that's what you said. Yeah, um, great. All right, so we've all right, so we've got meeting the student with where they're at. We've got some, you know, basically structure of a program focusing on you know deep learning before surface learning, and you know, super transparent learning outcomes, learning goals, written on a billboard, you know, that everyone can see. Um, what about um. You know, I mean, we we talked offline about you know should there be standards in in teaching in teacher training, um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on 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 this. And I'm not sure I'm not sure if we're going to agree on this or not. So I'm I'm looking forward to our conversation. So yeah, what are your thoughts on standards for teacher training? Okay, so I will admit that I'm like in a grey area with this right now personally because I used. Coming from the education background, I was like, there should 100% be standards. We should all know what our goal is and what we're working towards. Um, and and I think that gets murky for me um, because the I guess it brings me back to this question of like, what do students actually need to know to be good Pilates instructors? And then I ask myself the question, what does it mean to be a good Pilates instructor? And my like emotional response to that is it's somebody who knows how to create a space that is safe for another person and teach them about their body, like really basic. But then also layered onto that, like I personally think they should know quite a bit about anatomy and injury and recovery. Um, and then also all of the exercises um, and have the ability to read, you know, different types of body and make these assessments. But 
I get stuck in a place where I also think it's important to recognize the history of Pilates. I personally believe we are in a phase in our industry where while the classical system is valuable in its historic importance, I guess is how I want to say that. And, and like it can, you know, it's fun and it, I've, I've enjoyed classical workouts. I find it very rigorous. It's a fun way to challenge the body. I don't believe that that is the best way for everybody to do Pilates. And I think that people need to be more versatile in their teaching than just that. Um, and so then where does that leave us? I, I would like to see more conversations around what people think the standards in Pilates should be. Um, and I think that, you know, living in the US, I was, oh, I had great hopes that that would sort of be the role that the PMA played. Um, and I don't feel like that is a role that they are really able to fulfill. And what has instead happened is we just kind of like yell at each other about what is and isn't correct. So I think that because of the fact that Pilates has so much overlap, and I know that maybe this is different in Australia, but in my view, there is so much overlap in the way that Pilates is used as just an exercise system and then also rehabilitatively. I do think that because of that, we should start to develop much clearer and more rigorous standards about what you need to know in order to become a Pilates instructor. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I'm going to agree with some of what you said and disagree with other parts. I think um I wholeheartedly agree that in relation to both rehab and fitness, there there ought to be there all I don't know if there ought to be. I think there's there's a value, there's definite value to requiring um, you know, standards of um, you know the content of what you're teaching to to match up with current best practice. You know, best practice as defined by national guidelines, clinical guidelines, you know, etc. So if you're teaching somebody within the context of a Pilates training how to help someone, quote, get fit, well, that what you're teaching them should match what's in the current American College of Sports Medicine guidelines for exercise and testing and prescription in relation to healthy populations, right? It shouldn't contradict that because that is current best practice. I agree. So I think there should be some sort of basic level of um, alignment with current you know, established best practice in fitness or rehabilitation if you're, you know, to the extent that that is taught within a particular training. Uh, and I, so, I, so I think it should be incumbent upon training providers to show that, you know, to the extent that they're, you know, purporting to teach students how to improve fitness or strength uh, or, you know, rehabilitate or, you know, help people with pain or injuries or whatever or prevent injury, you know, these things are, are all relatively well understood and there are lots of clinical guidelines and best practice available and you know we should adhere to that but um there's a you know i've, I've been involved in uh the plays alliance of australasia here i'm no longer affiliated with them um but i was for a while associated with them and also in australia here our education uh, uh, we have a like a, a lot of government regulation around uh, the education space and our company here in Australia, we call what's, what's called a registered training organisation, which means that we have jumped through a fucking bazillion hoops to uh, to satisfy the government of Australia that we are um, suitable um, and we can hand we can hand out 
government accredited qualifications. So we hand out a diploma or certificate for here in Australia, which is a it's, it's a government qualification, which means it's, it's part of the Australian qualifications framework. It's recognised by law, so it's like it's 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 uh, legally required for people to recognise the qualification alongside, say, a, a high school certificate or a you know university degree. You know, you, you can't just if you're an employer, you can't say, oh, no, we don't recognise degrees from XYZ University. It's like, no, if you've got a degree, you've got a degree. So that's, that's you know, in Australia, we've got that. And so we're regulated by the Australian Skills and Quality Authority. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly familiar with uh, standards and, and regulation. And the massive problem, the two massive problems the, that I've seen, the first one is with ASQA, with Australian Skills Quality Authority. So this is like government-mandated regulation. Um, is that the government is so <laughs> huge and bureaucratic and um, you know slow that their basically their regulation is very tight and it, you know like they do regulate us very tightly and we have to comply, but the things they regulate us on are totally fucking irrelevant to student outcomes, right? So they regulate us on have we filled out all the paperwork, have we ticked the boxes, have we, you know, is have we worded the disclaimer on our induction form correctly? You know, do our staff hold the right qualifications? Blah, blah, blah. They don't give a fuck about do our students actually learn anything and are our students getting jobs after they leave our trainees. Like they don't care about that. But they 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 regulate the absolute living daylights out of our paperwork. So that's one problem is like regulate. So basically the government regulation introduces a massive tax on the organisation. Like we have to spend, you know, hundreds of hours a year just fucking doing paperwork <laughs> to show that we're compliant, which has no no relationship to actually providing good, edu- good quality education. In fact, in many cases, the things we have to do in order to show the paperwork actually are, uh, antithetical actually make it harder for us to deliver quality education because we have to contort ourselves into you know strange positions in order to satisfy the government um so that's one problem uh and the second problem is, that i've seen which is relations i experience with the pilates alliance of australasia so the pilates alliance of australasia pia is like the mini me of the pma you know it's like the australian version of the, um, the size of the pma or something we had like something like 650 members or something like that. You know, this was a few years back. I don't know how many I've got now. But um, the problem is the PAA and the PMA as well is basically made up of like who 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 forms these organisations? Well, they're just people in the industry, right? So who's on the committee of the PMA, right? What's P, this person who owns this Pilates education centre and that person who owns that Pilates studio and, you know, this person who does their international workshop presenting like so they're all just like pilates teachers right who have you know basically banded together and said okay let's let's call ourselves an industry organization let's make rules about what education should look like amongst other things in in this industry but it's like well there's an inherent freaking conflict of interest there right because if i if i have an educate if i own an educate pilates education business Right, and I'm on the board of the PAA, which I was, and I'm making rules about, you know, I'm voting on, okay, who should we let to deliver education and how should we define the rules about who gets to deliver education, well, which I was. Okay. Well, that, I mean, it's basically I'm, I get to vote to go, okay, well, education should look like exactly what I teach in my course. 
right? And if you do it the way just be my right? And if you do it the way those other people do it, well, that's bad. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to be accredited, you know. And you know, of course, I, I don't, I don't mean to imply any malfeasance or or ill intent on the part of any of those people in the PMA or PAA, but they're all they're doing most of them are doing it for free out of the goodness of their hearts because for the good of the industry. But human interest, you know, like self-interest is a powerful thing that operates beneath the level of conscious intent, I believe, you know, in, in almost all of us. And I just think it's basically it's 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 setting those people up for massive, you know, for like it's basically putting them in an impossible position when you're asking them to define the rules of you know, what the standards should be and they're the ones who have to abide by the standards. So, yeah, that's why that's why I think at the end of the day, standards are very problematic. I I would agree. Um, I totally hear that and I, I see that. Um, and I, you know, academic education can be just as bureaucratic, if not more. Um, but then the other side of that coin, which we experience or I've witnessed in the U.S. is that, you know, a lot of any Pilates studio, like I could start a teacher training program tomorrow on my own if I wanted and like sell it for thousands of dollars if I was able to convince people to do it with me. And, you know, it's on it's on the students to like figure out whether or not I would be a good candidate for them to pursue training with. And I think a lot of what has started to happen in the U.S. and I actually um you've got me thinking a lot more, or Pilates Elephants has had me thinking a lot more about this because I think maybe one of the issues is actually how we structure our studio businesses in the United States as in they're like too small. So people have a really hard time making money if they're just a studio. And so what they tend to do is then they're like, oh, I'll do a teacher training program. And then all of my people who are clients will pay me thousands of dollars to do a teacher training program. And then, you know, I think the same thing tends to happen in yoga a little bit as well. Um, And that's, then we end up into another weird place where you're like, okay, well, you know, poor student who didn't do as great a research as maybe they could have about where they should have ideally tried to seek out um, a Pilates teacher training cert that would have gotten them more for their money, um, but they didn't. And so then they paid the $10,000 or whatever it is um, to get their teacher training cert. And then they really don't know very much. Um, And I, I think that that, that does happen because it isn't regulated in any real way in the U.S. Um, so I can I could see both sides, and I don't know which is the lesser of the two evils. <laughs> I think I just have more experience with the latter. Yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, I, I I don't think there's a I don't think there's a perfect answer at this point. Um, and I can definitely see in some industries, like uh, you know, I want and when I fly. I want a qualified airline pilot who's got all the appropriate certifications because I believe that massively increases my chance of not dying in a flaming fireball. But um, on the other hand, uh, if I, you know, went to, I don't know, a business mentor, right, having someone with 27 MBAs wouldn't impress me at all. I'd want to see someone who'd started and grown a successful business. I don't care what qualifications mm-hmm. I've got. So I think, you know, there's a there's definitely a place for, for standards and regulation in, in you know in, in the world. And I also think there's a place for you know, there's a there's a there's a time and place where they're they're irrelevant or harmful. And then there's I think Pilates probably sits somewhere in betwixt and between where it's like, yeah, there's probably pros and cons, you know, each way. 
Yeah, I think I think that is fair. Um, and I would probably again lean a little more to the standards just because in you know you use the airline pilot example, but then I think about like nursing. I want someone who like knows how to actually draw my blood without like having to stick me twenty times with a needle. Um, and you know, Pilates, because we are dealing with the body and in many instances, like potentially bodies that are um, working on something or like trying to be out of pain, like there is a little more responsibility that comes with that, especially because so many people tend to look at their, or again, I'm speaking to my experience in the United States, because I know there's a little more of a crossover between uh, rehab, rehabilitation and Pilates in Australia. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that are looking to us as experts of the body and sometimes people are coming to Pilates because they're like trying to avoid going to PT or rehab and so because of that and how it's used um, I, I again lean a little more towards like wanting people to be accountable to certain things that they like need to know before they're given the privilege of that power yeah yeah I mean I definitely I agree with you that um, I mean I think you know reasonable people could could take either side of this of this conversation, um, I'd, I'd, I'm not fully settled myself. I'd probably lean a bit more the other way um, compared to you. I'd probably lean, you know, towards less uh, regulation. But I, I totally concede that, you know, I think it's. I don't think there's an, any clear, you know, right or wrong answer to this. I feel like it's just like you know, it's shades of grey. Grey, yeah, agreed. <laughs> um, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. I mean, we've got just because we're kind of touching around the hour mark, but man, there there are so many other <laughs> things that we could discuss. Like, so the different. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you kind of touched on the you know the the different tiers of teacher training programs. Like, so for instance, the bigger programs like Polestar, Balance Body, or um, Club Pilates, or whatever it might be. Uh, compared with sort of like the just little regular local studios who offer te- their own sort of branded teacher training, um, but I mean we could go a lot deeper in into that. Um, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I would even like to go further into the conversation of like how you know teacher training programs would teach uh, students to be you know good quote Pilates citizens and community members. I mean you kind of touched on that at the start, but it's like something, you know, that was totally absent for me in my initial stop Pilates education was even the the notion that there was any other way of doing Pilates. So what I was, what, what I learned, you know, was stop Pilates. I learned it, I didn't learn it as this is our way. It's one way. There are other ways. I learned it like, this is the way, you know, I wasn't even told there are those, there are other people in the world and they're wrong. Like I, I just, it's like when you're a kid and you grow up in, in your household, it's like whatever your parents do, if your parents are like, vegans or Mormons or Hare Krishnas, it's like you just take it as completely normal, right? You don't, you don't, you just accept that that's the way the world is. And that's the way I felt with, I was, you know, when I, when I learned, I didn't learn. It's like, oh yeah, well, we teach it this way and there are other people teach it different ways. And once you get out into the world, you'll meet those people and I'll tell you, you do it wrong sometimes. And here's how you might respond to that. And here's, sometimes you'll see people and they'll be doing it differently. And, you know, is it really that important for you to tell them that they're doing it wrong? You know, or could you just let them do it? you know, their way and not worry about it. Um, so, I, you know, I think we could have a lot more of those conversations as well. Totally. I mean, just listening to you, I'm like I'm flashing back to my very first teacher training. 
um, to be quite honest, like, you know, I was like a poor serving artist when I went through my first teacher training and I was like, okay, Polestar, this is the way. Okay. Classical Pilates breaks people and it's terrible. I didn't even know that there was an order, like that there could be an order like that had never been taught to me. So I like came to work at Equinox and I was like, what are you talking about? Series of five? Like, I have no idea what that is because nobody ever taught it to me. Um, so I think there is a huge bias that can come into, you know, deciding whatever uh, training program you choose to pursue. And another layer, which I know that, you know, we're coming towards the end of the time. And so maybe we don't have the full time to dig into this, but another layer of that concept of like, you know, teacher training programs being a big, having a big responsibility because they really sort of set people up to be the creatures that they are going to be in our industry is at least in the U.S. there's a whole other layer of sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion education that I think should be in teacher training programs. Um, and for many reasons, um, but just part, like to name a few, because like there are not currently, at least in the United States, like we don't acknowledge many of the people of color who are involved in our industry. And I know that like the PMA has had a lot of issues around that. And that, you know, if you were, again, my comparison for this is like thinking about the things that I had to think about and learn as a public school educator, like that's absolutely part of your continuing education and things that you have to be responsible for. Um, and I may not be the best person to speak to how we should do that, but I do feel very aware of the fact that that is something, especially in the US, that is definitely also a part of what is happening in our industry and like have also seen examples of that play out in real time in teacher training programs that I've been involved in. Yeah, I mean, I think we could even sort of expand that out to, to to include basically all the things, you know, in addition to being a good teacher, you know, all of the other things that, that make you successful, both sort of financially, you know, ethically and personally as a, as a Pilates instructor, you know, for business skills, um, you know, having difficult conversations, um, yeah, like you say, uh, equity and inclusion, um, you know, like there are so many, you know, time management, um, how, to, how, to, how to set up a, a booking app, um, you know, like these are the things that people struggle with in the real world when they get out of their um, teacher training programs, you know, how to price your services, um, how to know whether you profit or not, um, how to negotiate, uh, yeah, what your rights are at work. You know, I think there are so many, so many areas that we could include, you know, uh, in, in insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kyle, this has been awesome. I, I'm, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, we defined pedagogy, which basically just means like how you structure education and, and teaching. Um, and uh, we really compared and contrasted that uh authoritarian model, which is basically a data dump from the teacher to the student, uh, focuses on rote learning and memorization and just reproducing, regurgitating, you know, the, the one true way. Um, and we contrasted that with sort of a mutual inquiry-based model of teaching and learning where the, the teacher meets the student, you know, where they're at, and then, um, uh, you know, through clear learning outcomes, focus first on deep learning, you know, learning principles, concepts, um, uh, metacognition, reasoning skills, et cetera, 
and then you know secondarily on surface learning and and that you know has to tie in with how we're assessing these uh, things just like are we, how do we measure what the student actually wants to achieve so when students come to us to learn they want to become skilled and confident Pilates instructors who are able to make a you know, profound difference for their clients. And so how do we measure their ability to do that in the test rather than measuring their ability to memorize, you know, that the scapulae should sit flat and flush with the medial borders parallel and three to five centimeters from the spinous processes, depending on the size of the individual, you know, which is I still remember from 15 years ago when I did my stop Pilates training. Um, yeah, so and I, I don't, and then we talked about standards, and we kind of came to like, okay, there are pros and cons, and you're kind of more leaning towards, yeah, it's probably a good idea if we do have standards, and I'm probably more leaning towards like, yeah, nah, let's not have standards. Um, but um, yeah, I think did did I miss anything? Does that sum it up? No, that pretty much sums it up. And I, I just like also, I guess, empowering um, students to like be the teachers that they want to be, which is kind of that was wrapped up in your nice, succinct way of talking about meeting people where they are at, but just the idea that there isn't just one type of Pilates instructor that you can be. There's so many options, <laughs> and we need to do a better job of enabling more people to realize that. 100 bazillion percent, yes. Kyle, thanks so much. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you, Raph. Thanks for having me. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.